You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning from Washington, D.C. On behalf of myself and my colleagues, thank you for joining us today. My name is Rosie Levine. I'm a Senior Program Analyst for China at USIP. For those of you who are not familiar with the United States Institute of Peace, or USIP, we were established by the U.S. Congress in 1984 as a national, nonpartisan public institution dedicated to helping prevent, mitigate, and resolve violent conflict abroad. Today's virtual panel discussion is jointly hosted by USIP's China and Nonviolent Action Teams. It is titled, China, um, Civil Society's Role in Navigating Authoritarianism, Advocating for Peace and Justice Amid Shrinking Civic Spaces. We have a fantastic group of experts joining us to dive into this topic. Across the globe, we have seen a rise in authoritarianism. According to Freedom House's project, um, Freedom House's uh, project 2021 um, Freedom in the World Assessment, fewer than a fifth of the world's population now lives in fully free countries. This is part of a longer trend of democratic decline and rising authoritarianism that has been underway for the last 30 years which was further exacerbated during the emergency restrictions that characterized the COVID-19 global pandemic. When thinking about this trend, um, uh, sorry, when thinking about this trend um, of a, um, the, and the prevalence of new forms of digital surveillance and censorship, a very simple question one might ask is, what role, if any, can civil society play in non-democracies? Despite such challenges, civil society and citizen activists around the globe have found ways to carve out space and make change within authoritarian systems. Our panelists will draw upon examples from Asia, Europe, and Africa to help shed light on how this happens. Close examination of how these actors have found ways to influence policy processes can reveal a lot. We can learn about the adaptive capabilities, strategies, and tactics employed by civil society and taken together, these examples can help us understand how the strategic use of nonviolent action can lead to policy and other positive social changes in contested environments. Beyond this, however, examining the role of civil society in non-democracies can also help us better understand the priorities and governance approaches of authoritarian regimes and offers other critical lessons for supporting civil society in these contexts. I'm pleased to welcome this expert group of panelists who each bring a wealth of knowledge from practitioner and academic perspectives to help us tackle this very rich topic. To moderate um, today's discussion and introduce the panelists, I'm delighted to introduce Florence Nakazibwe, Senior Legal Advisor for Africa at the International Center for Nonprofit Law, ICNL. At ICNL, uh, Florence oversees regional and thematic projects targeted at addressing civil society, legal environment issues, and civic space protection, as well as fostering capacity for government actors, civil society organizations, and regional institutions in Africa on civil society law reform and applicable norms. We are delighted to have her today and she will introduce the rest of our panelists. Florence, over to you, thanks. Uh, thank you, Rosie. Uh, it's a pleasure uh, to be here. Uh, greetings to you all and very welcome. Um, this, uh, the topic of authoritarianism is uh, a topic that cannot be overstressed. Uh, given how it is increasingly creating an existential threat to democracies around the world. Uh, in the current era, it's estimated that 70% of the global population lives under authoritarian political regimes. And it is also projected that if the decline in democracy continues at the present scale, less than 5% of the world's population will live in a full democracy by 2026. So really, this is uh, issues around, you know, threats and how worrying they are when it comes to uh, civil society space and all other actors living in such uh, political contexts. The ongoing backlash against democracy as a result of authoritarianism is characterized by a pronounced shift from outright repression of democracy, human rights and civil society activists and groups to more subtle government efforts to restricting the space for civil society organizations, especially democracy assistance groups uh, to operate. Too many regimes now are employing a standard of uh, a standard forms of repression uh, coming from including activist imprisonment and organizational harassment to disappearances and executions. Uh, these trends are causing tremendous consequences for different groups, different key groups, including civil society organizations, opposition, opposition groups and activists. Uh, who are being targeted as a result of legal repression and threats. 
Authorities are again using a lot of securitization measures to really silence, um, to harass and uh, censor uh, civil society groups, to crack down on their operations and really undermine civic activism. Authoritarian political contexts are also very prone to weakening democratic oversight by independent institutions, including courts, national human rights institutions, and legis legislative bodies that have a mandate to check the excessive excesses in the use of executive powers and ensuring accountability. Now, while these trends are worrying, it's very important for us to think about the strategic and integral role that civil society and other stakeholders play in pushing back against these trends encountering the power dynamics and shaping the governance trajectory in this political context. So I'm delighted to facilitate and moderate this conversation uh, with a panel of eminent speakers and uh, experts who will help us dig deeper in the trends that we are seeing across, across the globe and uh, what strategies uh, uh, these groups are using in sort of pushing back and influencing their space. Um, with, with us uh, to delve into this topic, we have a panel of three. Uh, we have, I'll start off with the first panelist, uh, Miss Jessica Titz, uh, who is a professor at Middlebury College in Vermont and Templeton Asia Program Fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Uh, she has done research that focuses on governance in authoritarian regime and especially the role of civic participation. Uh, most importantly, today she'll be telling us about the book that she has recently authored, uh, themed Lobbying the Autocrat, the Dynamics of Policy Advocacy in Non-Democracy. Uh, secondly, we also have a panelist, uh, Sophia Young, who is an honorary research fellow at the University College London's Anthropology Department, uh, who is also doing research that focuses on social activism and citizenship and the political economy of de development. He also has authored a book entitled Strategies of Authoritarian Survival and Dissensus in Southeast Asia, which was published in 2021. Uh, and then last but not least, we'll also hear from Ivan Marovic, who is an organizer and software developer and social innovator from Belgrade, Serbia. He was previously one of the leaders of the Otpo Youth Movement, which played a critical role in the downfall of Slobodan Milosevic in 2000. He has spent several years as a leading educator in the field of strategic nonviolent action in developing learning programs on civic civil resistance and movement building. So uh, with that, I would want to invite Professor Jessica to start us off to share her findings on this topic uh, on, on her book. Over to you, Jessica. Thank you so much, Florence. Um, let me go ahead and share screen um, so that I can show everybody a few images from the book that I think will be helpful. Um, so this is a, a book that I published with uh, Max Romping and um, what we wanted to do was in political science, especially, but but just in the dialogue about authoritarian regimes, mostly what we see is that people focus on the institutions like the party system or elections, you know, manipulated elections. But mostly this is a story of elites, elites who have power. And citizens or civil society are usually seen as just sort of passive takers of, of elite repression until there are protests. So there are no citizens that we really talk about, um, you know, in Egypt until there's an Arab Spring. And so what Max and I wanted to do is we wanted to correct this because for practitioners and for researchers who study um, civic mobilization and civil society around the world, we know that in authoritarian regimes, there are everyday cases where citizens are lobbying the government. And in a lot of cases, they're actually winning policy concessions. And so what we wanted to do is bring that everyday advocacy um, in authoritarian regimes back into our discussion. <clears throat> and so we brought together a, a large group of other scholars so that we could have a range of other cases. So we have, you know, China's the most authoritarian example, all the way up to Montenegro as our most democratic example. And then countries like, like Turkey's moving around a little bit, um, becoming more autocratic over time. So these are the range of cases then that we use in the book. And what we try to do is we take a well-known life cycle approach that's used in democracies. This is basically how um, civic organizations, lobbying groups form, how they compete, how they advocate, 
and then how they win influence. And so this is commonly used in research and democracies. And what we wanted to do is study the same, um, the same life cycle inside of authoritarian regimes to see what's different and what's the same. So what's the same just for lobbying across the board versus what might differ because of the regime type? And so what we found in the first stage, this is where we're looking at a group of citizens who want to come together and they want to form some sort of lobbying organization. And so this is where they're mobilizing. So they are registering, they're looking for volunteers, they're looking for staff, they're trying to get initial funding. This is that very first stage. So as these groups are trying to enter into the policy space, what we see inside of authoritarian regimes is that there are fewer groups that are allowed to complete this process, and they're usually smaller. Um, we also see that there are a lot of policy areas that are just no-go issues. These are too sensitive and groups are not allowed to form. So that's what we see inside of authoritarian regimes. But then in both democracies and authoritarian regimes, we see that groups that focus on things like technical information that the regime needs to know, that these groups are welcomed. Um, whether it's a, a dictator or a Democrat. We also see that there's less mobilization in emergent policy areas, and this is just the same across regime types. Now, in the second stage, once these groups have formed, um, they enter into an ecosystem. This is where other advocacy groups are active. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to compete based on their ideas for projects, for funding, for policy influence. In this ecosystem, what we see is that in authoritarian um, regimes, we see that there are fewer groups. We also see that groups are, they tend to be clustered in certain policy areas and not diversified across all policy areas. That's probably expected. Um, what we see that's a really interesting outcome though is that in authoritarian regimes, there are essentially two ecosystems where you have regime loyalists and then you have opposition communities. They're in two different ecosystems and they're not competing with each other for funding or policy influence. So they're competing inside of their ecosystem, but not across. Now, Compared to democracies, we also see a lot of similarities. So we see that groups compete on different ideas. Um, we also see that they have different resources. Um, and so that's similar to democracies. Now in the third area, this is where groups have already formed. They're already competing in an ecosystem with other lobbying groups. This is where they have to decide what their advocacy strategies are going to be. In authoritarian regimes, what we see are that your political resources really impact your strategic choice. So this is how close are you to policymakers? What sort of access do you have? Do you have any sort of political protection? We also see that in authoritarian regimes, most advocacy groups aim for lower levels of government. So rather than, you know, approach the national government, they're usually trying to win influence at local government. It's, it's just easier to access these policymakers. Now, what we see that's the same in democracies and authoritarian regimes is that oftentimes strategic choices are being determined by resources that are inside of the group. So this isn't the external political environment, but this is simply what sort of resources and skills the group has access to. Also, interestingly, is that we see that outside lobbying tactics using strategies like media strategies, social media strategies, that these are really prevalent in both democracies and authoritarian regimes. And that doesn't differ by regime type. And then in this last stage where we say, you know, are these advocates actually able to influence outcomes? Are they able to win their, their um, battle for policy influence? What we see is that in authoritarian regimes that they are restricted to non-sensitive policy areas. Again, there are no-go policy areas in which groups simply can't influence the outcome. However, we see that for regimes that are focused on performance legitimacy, this could either be economic performance or democratic procedures like holding elections, even if they're not necessarily all that competitive. In those types of regimes, we see that um, these advocacy groups can actually have a lot of influence.
Now, when we look across authoritarian regimes and compare them with democracies, we also see that whenever there are elite divides, so where the elites disagree about what the policy should be, this gives advocacy groups um, entry into the policymaking process so that they can supply this expert information that might help one side you know, win over the other side. And we see that regardless of regime type. So when we look at the life cycle, then these are some of the differences and similarities we see between authoritarian regimes and democracies. And so what this seems to boil down to is that in those earlier stages of the life cycle where groups are just trying to form, they're trying to register, they're trying to get volunteers, and when they start to enter into an ecosystem where they have to compete with other organizations for funding and policy influence, this is where authoritarian regimes are the most restrictive. This is where they differ from democracies. So we see that authoritarian regimes really put most of their repression resources on these early stages of group development. In later stages, so once the groups have already formed and they're already competing for funding and policy influence, we see that when it comes to the strategies that they pick and the outcomes that they have, whether they're successful or not, we don't see a lot of differences between authoritarian regimes and democracies. And so this led us then to think about, can we build a theory for how groups can lobby autocrats? And the model that we came up with has three different areas. And this is for groups to think about, but also for researchers who study these groups to think about. And one is simply access to policymaking. So in authoritarian regimes, the size of the people who make policy are usually much smaller. And oftentimes they are not distributed evenly across the political regime, but might be concentrated in one branch or the other. So you might have a really strong executive and a really weak legislature. Right. So these are important things to understand. Um, the other is the demand for information. So for policy relevant information, how available is that information to autocrats? Do the, is there anything like a free press or a semi free press that they can get information from or do they need the, this information from advocacy groups? And then the last part is social control. And so this is understanding what the repertoire for repression is across the regimes. As Florence talked about, this is a really wide repertoire, all the way from receiving a visit from um, police services, all the way up to being jailed for advocacy work. So knowing what that repertoire is and where those red lines are can lead to an adaptive lobbyist. And these are the lobbyists in our study that we saw were able to work in these really challenging conditions and be successful. And so I'll go ahead and stop here and um, turn over to Sophia so that we can hear more about these specific cases. But I wanted to point out that um, University of Michigan Press has made our book open access. And so um, people can read the different chapters and the theory for free, which is, which is great. So I'll go ahead and stop here. Thank you. Thank you, Jessica. Uh, over to you, Sophia, please. Thank you, Jessica and, and Florence. So, yeah, so I'll bring a case study on Cambodia that uh, I have a chapters within the book as well. So these uh, chapters I discuss about the transnational advocacy network, that one of the influential concepts that many advocacy groups or civil society organizations have been using and referring to as a strategic point in order to influence policies making and also the outcome of movement in different uh, developing countries and also developed countries as well. So uh, draw on the case Cambodia, so transnational advocacy a claim as in one of influence that can connect between the global north and global south or can be the west and, uh, and, and, and other developing countries in that, especially in the context of human rights and environmental protections like that. So the case of transnational advocacy become uh, uh, privileged because of the recent globalization and also democratization of smartphone as well as social medias that linking to the networking of the information as uh, uh, just men mentioned about how it is important in terms of uh, data and information to frame the policies making like that. And it has enabled group like connection from one group to another to respond to human rights as well as uh, environmental protection issue. So this often call like in 
in the scholarly work that calls a uh, uh, boomerang effects. That mean the group that weak uh, with the weak uh, resource and powers like that can also connect with the international with resourceful person that compete each other to provide advice as well as to leverage influence from the outside of the country and to influence policies making in the countries like that. So, uh, but not many people have have been talking a lot, not a lot about the contact where the regime has been named as like autocracy as well as the regime has been named some sort of like a hybrid contact as one. And not many have been discussing about what they call the nationalism and also sovereignty. When we talked about the uh, authoritarianism as well, autocracy and autocratization, one of the key issues that has been raising for them is that they have to protect their legitimacy as well as the, the sovereignty. So the influence by the international or or, uh, foreign agents tend to be considered as the domestic influence uh, in intervention that can lead to some sort of like a regime change or, or demobilization of regime in that context like that. Yeah. So uh, autocrat always perceive that international and uh, intervention and support from international actors undermine the national sovereignty or when attempt to democratize the regime like that. So local interest with a strong link to transnational advocacy network may uh, face a lot of challenge in this context, especially when it comes to whether they can ensure how to navigate this to ensure the effectiveness in terms of policies making and also influence policies like that. So uh, the book, the, the chapters that I draw on the movement of uh, environmental protection, again, the hydropower development in Cambodia, where the dense forest will be undated and also the biodiversity will be destroyed in that context. So a group of local uh, initiative called the Modern Natures uh, using that kind of approach with uh, a lot of commitment from the international support that uh, come to that kind of contact. So by uh, working together with the local community as well as international actors, using different social medias like that to influence that kind of, uh, of, kind of movement. So as you know, Cambodia is one of the hybrid regimes where electoral system has been in place and used to legitimize the ruling system. The election is held regularly and but the regime and the government has not been known or has been known to the scholars and advocacy group as like electoral or sartorianism or the regime that we call like regime with active we can say some semi-demography um, uh, uh, hybrid demography or anything like that or electoral or sartorianism as well or some sort would say autocracy so recently a lot of scholars as well as practitioners has named it as autocracy because the leader has been there more than several decades regardless of recent transition of power so the country actually depends on a lot of foreign aid and also trade in order to develop the country and as a result of that they use it as in order to legitimize how the country are being governed like that but they are very uh, resistant to the contact what they call foreign intervention because even though they depend on foreign uh, support but they resist to the, any ideology that can be very contradictory to the regime governance something like that so uh, in this context, so how the civil society group or advocacy group that I mentioned above navigate themselves through this process. So we see at the beginning, there's a rise of like a repression on the uh, civil society as well as the modern nature group that uh, try to protect the community from being uh, 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 affected by the dam constructions like that. So one of the key funders of the leader were actually banned or forced into living in exile. So that I mean, uh, it indicates the sign where the uh, international foreigners that working in the country become very sensitive to the country like that because of the uh, regime is moving towards some sort of authoritarianism that can also create any adverse impact to the regime like that. So um, uh, the, what happened to those people, especially the local uh, activists and also civil society that has been working collaboratively with international uh, uh, actors like that? So in that context, we found that uh, in terms of like the local activists have transformed themselves like uh, from the structural based organization into uh, individual citizenship who actually claim the right of citizen based on the law prescribed like the Cameroon constitution saying that every citizen has a right to protect or to participate in that. 
for, from the structural organization to the uh, individual base uh, to avoid some sort of repression that can be happen because can be accused as the agent that actually brought ideology from international into the local for the aim of like uh, demobilizing as well as democratizing the societies like that. So through social media, these like individual activists plus uh, uh, other support from the very limited from the international actors. So the international actors is now moving themselves away, but the local one have played a very important role to mobilize support from the local community as well as through social media, they leverage some sort of participation from youth society that pay a lot of interest to the protection measures and also natural over there. And it become what they call is the national interest. So that here the key of the national interest and also the sovereignty. And then the local community would claim and also local activists would claim that this is not the matter of international agent that actually uh, infiltrate any other foreign intervention in the country, but it is an initiative that created by the local community plus the uh, the national uh, interest to protect. So the, the Australian government here see is the case where they can also link to their political legitimacy as well. So they take action in that process and also provide very decisive uh, approach to stop building the dam in that case area. So uh, in this context, so we, we see that uh, there is a, a, a delocalization process from the international to the local process, from the structural organization to individual uh, organization like that, that give them some sort of like uh, 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 leverage to influence the policy. So to conclude, I would say that to remain engaged and active, advocacy group have to decentralize themselves from organizational based to the unstructured mass participation movement of citizens and groups. And they have done so not only to survive and also to avoid repression measure from uh, the ruling regimes and also to reframe the advocacy strategy in line what we call like sovereignties and also the national interest. So when it comes to national interest, so that means the regime will pay more attention and the uh, repression will be reduced a little bit, but it's still there. But at least they can achieve their result by uh, leveraging that kind of influence. But to bear in mind that social media has been playing a very important role in country where there a lot of people have been using like uh, media as part like that. So social media will provide some sort of leverage to attract more internet, uh, more uh, participation from the mass uh, citizen like that. So this can be considered as a homegrown strategy to ensure that uh, all participants are, are paying attention to the contact and reframe the issue to the national interest. So uh, in this, I would say that there's a form of uh, shifting strategy from one place to another strategy to another strategy to navigate through different kinds of mechanisms to ensure that they remain engaged and they can also influence the policies. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sophia, for sharing uh, that experience from Cambodia. I'll now move on to Ivan uh, to share his uh, reactions to this topic. Yes, thank you, Florence. I think this is fascinating. I actually have to say that like, I'm really glad that uh, uh, we are here painting the picture of uh, autocracies that is very different from, you know, focusing on repression, top-down firm control, which is something that is in the news, in the media, that is our perception, but is also the picture that autocrats themselves would like to paint. Uh, however, you know, if we do any kind of analysis of, of, of any autocracy, we can see that there is a elite competition, competition within the elite circles and different factions uh, exist there. So it's much more dynamic uh, situation than, you know, it's kind of hidden from the uh, from the public, but it's still there. And in those competitions, unlike democracies where elites uh, have to go back to the people every now and then and ask them, like, who do you like more? In autocracies, the autocrat him, himself or, uh, you know, uh, plays the role of an arbiter between those uh, elites. And, and as long as they don't question the role of that arbiter, you know, this competition can take place. And I think like, you know, the idea of lobbying the autocrats, at least how I see it, uh, uses that feature of autocracy, that uh, as long as the power of the autocrat is not threatened, some of the, how shall I say, demands, some of the ideas and some of the policy uh, how shall I say, uh, 
can be even adopted and 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 uh, and implemented. However, here is where I would put the caveat: is that every little victory for civil society is potentially the power in the grassroots because the success breeds more uh, demand for more representation and more. And this is where the danger lies, I think, uh, for, for this. And I think that like every autocrat who feels that uh, uh, their power might be, even if it's not intentional, might be threatened because of the growing capabilities and growing capacity of the of the civil uh, society will uh, resort to the uh, to the crackdown, and we've seen that uh, many times where movements who started as social movements who had to deal with uh, uh, particular issues bothering uh, communities ended up being politicized because uh, fighting for a particular issue is always, at least in potential, uh, fighting uh, for pol political power or at least. Uh, limiting the existing political power. But I think this is actually really uh, 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 great for activists to know that this this is the something that, that, that can be done. And these are the, how shall I say, uh, potential risks to advocacy within uh, authoritarianism. And I'm, I'm really happy that 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 uh, this is clear in, in your in your uh, book. Thank you very much, uh, Ivan, and uh, uh, for all the uh, for all your reflections uh, in sort of looking at the opportunities that you know uh, we can consider in terms of the grassroots, the power of the grassroots movement, um, encountering some of the challenges that we see. Uh, I'll go back to uh, Professor Jessica um, in reaction to sort of the trends that you have seen and the challenges that are being posed to civil society uh, within this political context. What do you see is a, a more constructive and preventive approach uh, that civil society should take in sort of addressing these challenges and to really uh, sustainably influence and shape policy spaces? Yes, I mean, what we see in all the different country case studies that we look at is that it's just a challenging environment. So there's no one right answer. What we tend to see is that the groups who are most successful are the ones that are best able to adapt. So rather than sort of picking one strategy that they're able to use different strategies as they can. Um, and, you know, there are always balancing acts. So Ivan was talking about some of these, you know, if you if you get too close to one particular group of elites and their position, that can help you get access, but that can also then lead to later repression by the other group of elite. And so what we see in a lot of the case studies is just this adaptive lobbyist, this, this sort of balancing act between these different areas. We do see that the groups that are most successful tend to try to base themselves somehow on um, the claims of legitimacy that the regime makes. So let's say that it's a regime that, you know, really talks a lot about performance legitimacy, like economic growth. Um, the groups that we see that try to link their issues to that particular issue usually have more success. And then they just have to be very careful about how they propose that issue. But as Sophia was talking about, a lot of times using a media approach um, and you know, trying to mobilize people and mobilize public support for the issue, um, that that works really well. So I think oftentimes um, in democracies, we think, oh, you shouldn't draw attention to your cause because you'll be repressed. But if you don't draw attention to your cause, you won't have any influence. And so, again, there's that balancing act between you want the attention on your particular issue, but you want to make sure that you stop when you need to and switch tactics. So, again, it really comes down to adaptation and being able to quickly adapt. That's probably not a, a very satisfying answer in that there's no one right way. It's not like a formula exactly. But what we see is that groups that are able to adapt and understand the information needs, how to access policymakers, and then how to navigate that repertoire of repression, that those are the most successful groups. Thank you, uh, Jessica. And I, I totally agree with you. It's really about knowing very clearly what the context demands. Um, a lot of these are very dynamic contexts, and the players, the power dynamics, um, tend to shift a lot. 
So knowing when to, you know, play the right cards uh, in such context is very critical. Um, and also going back to Sophia, um, maybe looking at the strategies that you have shared that civil society are deploying, obviously we are seeing some successes in Cambodia with the environmental advocacy groups, but where do you see uh, are these actions falling short and what more needs to be done to sort of ensure that these interventions are transformative uh, in terms of the policy advocacy outcomes? Uh, thank you, Florence. So I think um, uh, there, there are many things that we can think in terms of how advocacy group and also civil society as well can play the role in this context. But <clears throat> but uh, one thing that I would see that, I mean, advocacy, when we talk in the developing country, especially in, in authoritarianism, something like that, it, it's more on a project of democracy project by the Western country would say something explicitly. I mean, a lot of international donors, international advocacy group have paid a lot of money through grant making and anything like that through the developing country. So when I think uh, the civil society in the local level, it, have, it own has challenges as well. On one hand, on one hand, how to ensure that the result being uh, discussed with the international donors are going to be addressed. On the one hand, they have, on the other hand, they have also need to navigate themselves through repressive measures that they are going to face. You may have known that a lot of like local civil society activists have been suffering a lot because of their uh, challenging their devotion to uh, achieve the outcome what they have been planned. So I think this is what we should think about when it comes to the strategy as well as the connection between the international actors and also the local actors to understand what their identities and to understand what their resource and technique that we can use is also the key thing that the international actors and also the local actors need to work together to make sure that how everyone will play their own role and also play in a more safe, safer way like that. Uh, the, the only thing that we can see here, adaptation, as Jessica, as Jessica mentioned, is, is the strategy that you can do. If you go a lot in terms of confrontation, then you face a lot of repressive and then it can be uh, cost up to life-changing, for example, or cost to life that can be a devastation approach that you would see in that context. So this is what we think, adaptation and navigation through different channels, even through different elite in order to negotiate that process is also the key thing that they should do. In terms of innovation, I would I would agree with the Evan saying that media has been playing a very important role. But uh, I mean, in theory of like uh, social movements, like uh, concession and repression, they always come together. Uh, the government as well as the ruling regime would say that if you concede a lot, what's happened if the mass mobilization will take strong action to uh, uh, demand for regime change? If you concede a lot, people will get demand more. If you concede less, uh, it's okay like that. If your people can concede a lot and then there's there going to be a lot of demand, then there will be a lot of repression from the government or to curb uh, any kind of action that can uh, put the regime at risk. So this is what to think so that the player the, the play role between like concession and is still there for debate in that context so uh as i, I did say in this context uh for the case Cambodia, maybe some other country as well when it comes to authorism even in china as well we're talking about the nationalism and also sovereignty no one can touch my country unless i have to say so for the rulers or the country like that so thinking about national interest how you build nationalism in the issue that you are talking about and also how to ensure sovereignty as, as contact as well so then you can buy it in the, the opinion as well as influence from the elite as well as the ruling regime so did that will consider some sort of innovation of thinking as well that not many of transnational advocacy network and also the international donor has been uh, talking about that Thank you, uh, Sophia, and um, really just uh, echoing the need for diversifying, you know, the different, you know, actors that are involved in this process. Um, and I think even listening to you all, uh, what again uh, that you hear a lot in authoritarian um, regimes is the notion of political manipulation. And this manipulation cuts across, not even just with the elitist groups, you know, the, the diversion, you know, that Jessica talked about, where you have the sympathizers and then the opposers uh, within all in the sector. And that really then undercuts on the collective voice that you would expect from that. But then even with the grassroots, as Ivan mentioned, uh, there is power there. But we also know even during election processes, uh, they are all very prone to manipulation. And um, in a way, they also undermine the outcomes that you're expecting, even though they play a distinct role in responding to these contexts. So uh, just moving on to Ivan, um, 
of course, aware of your experience in movement building, which is still a very crucial way in pushing back against these authoritarian regimes. What do you see um, as the role and the future of movement building and how can we really construct uh, alliances, you know, across, you know, the global south and the north? Yes, thank you for that question. I think it's, how should I say, it is uh, already like in, in our uh, discussion so far, uh, you know, we kind of tie issues uh, that communities are concerned with and that uh, they are pushing for with the questions of power and how power is distributed in the society. And so what we've seen throughout the 20th century and in the early 21st century especially is that social movements are the main vehicle for ordinary people to engage in politics. And that is true regardless of the political system. So in the more stable democratic systems, we do have social movements and we see them uh, changing not just behaviors, but also attitudes and policies. But we see the same happening in uh uh, more closed uh, uh, societies in authoritarian and hybrid uh, regimes. The reason for that is that people, especially, as I said, in the like 20th and 21st century, and the research has shown that, uh, are choosing uh, civic mobilization, uh, tactics of nonviolent action and uh, movement building as the form of political engagement, uh, partly because uh, institutional frameworks don't respond to their needs and they're rigged, and partially because, uh, and the research has shown, uh, uh, nonviolent action proved to be far more successful and far more effective than violent action. And I'm currently uh, heading uh, an organization, International Center on Nonviolent Conflict, here in DC, and we've supported uh, research uh, that showed uh, that uh, you know nonviolent movements are twice as effective as um, as violent movements. And even in the last fifteen years, when the effectiveness of nonviolent movements plummeted, and uh, you know there is a reason for concern, the effectiveness of violent movements plummeted even more. So, in a sense, it's still the game, the only game in town. So, in a sense, for conflict transformation. Uh, when we think about uh, uh, institutions that are not functioning, that are not responding to people's demands, and on the other hand, uh, violent conflict and and uh, uh, suffering that it brings, when we compare these two, uh, 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 nonviolent broad-based movements are still shown as the uh, alternative between these two uh, extremes, and people keep choosing this alternative as the probably the most viable one. Indeed, uh, a good uh, point of uh, note to end on that, um, the importance of nonviolent action, um, even as we are fighting uh, severe repression from autocratic regimes. Uh, there is a question that uh, we'll just move to the question from the audience. Uh, there's one question to Jessica. Uh, could you talk more about the competition you see between civil society groups and what are the causes of this? So these civil society groups, um, when they're trying to change policy, they're oftentimes competing with each other. So, for example, um, you know, even if you pick a policy as as easy as waste reduction, right? Um, when we look at groups in China who are working in this space, they have different ideas about what the right solution should be. So some want to incinerate waste, others want to, you know, deal with waste with more recycling. And so the groups are then competing with each other to get access to policymakers to promote their solution, their preferred solution. So this is the kind of competition that we see. And then there's also competition over funding. So there are only so many sources of funding and groups need Need to get funding in order to run their projects. So they're trying to secure funding as well as a receptive audience among policymakers. And this is where they're usually having sort of a, a competition of ideas or a marketplace of ideas. And they're trying to convince policymakers that their solution is the best. Um, Florence, I don't know if it's okay if I um, if I refer to something um, that um, Ivan was was saying a minute ago. Is is that okay? Please. Okay. Please. <laughs> um, he just brings up such a wonderful point about how civil society can work inside of authoritarian regimes to help reduce conflict. 
Um, and so one, one really interesting case that I've seen in the environmental movement is that a lot of these groups have had to move closer to the government. They've had to take on a lot of government service contracts and worked directly for the government. But what's really interesting is that even though they're working for the government, they're still bringing their values into that process. And so they're taking regulations that the central government has asked the local governments to implement into their work process, but the local government doesn't have the technical capacity to do that. They don't know how to do it. So they're hiring these environmental groups to do that work for them as consultants. And what they're doing is they're writing in processes like public comment periods and town halls and all sorts of access channels for local citizens to bring their complaints to the local government. And these channels didn't exist in any formal way before. Now they're being written into the laws and regulations that each time before you approve a permit, you have to hold an open period for citizens to come. And so I think that that's a really interesting point, which is, you know, even in authoritarian regimes to survive, these groups might have to work for the government, participate with the government, get close to the government, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're giving up their autonomy and their ideals. In some ways, they're just showing that adaptive characteristic so that they can promote um, their, their ultimate goals. Uh, thanks, uh, Professor Jessica, for that. And I, I guess really uh, very important technical expertise uh, is very key uh, to sort of support where there are weaknesses in institutions. The challenge, of course, is uh, maintaining the integrity because certain times, you know, um, the lines are blurred and you find that, you know, there are compromises, you know, to fit within the political system. So how do you protect the legitimacy of such, you know, civil society who are sort of providing that service? and support. Uh, there is another question. Are there any cases of authoritarian regimes working together with civil society actors? I feel like I've already touched on this to advance democratic reforms or other positive societal changes. And maybe uh, I don't know if uh, uh, Sophia or Ivan want to add to that. Any cases where yeah, regimes are working with civil society to advance democratic reforms or other positive societal changes? Where are we seeing this? Sophia? Yeah, I would see that there are many cases around Southeast Asia and also particularly in Cambodia as well that they have brought in a number of ideas from different other civil society to go together. As you can see from, uh, I mean, from, from the perspective of international donor as well as international advocacy group as well, they would ask that, do you have any channel that we can work with the political elite in order to influence pol certain policies? So uh, some of the NGO and also advocacy group, when they apply for a grant, they would say so that because they have built a lot, they have built a lot good network with the, the government, with the Ministry of Environment, with the uh, Department of Local Administration, something like that, to ensure that there is a local reform for democratization and also local participation. So this is like the COP co-optive process that we can see and a number of this has been like that because as i mentioned before the most of developing countries rely a lot of uh, aid and trade from the, uh, other country as well to they cannot just isolate themselves because they are not quite a communist country that need to isolate themselves similar to north korea for example so there's some sort of overlapping between different other aspects so they can work together uh, to a certain degree lobbying within from inside like that and that's why some organizations would or advocacy group will say that i'll, I'll do just outside one uh, without compromising my autonomy as well identity while the others were uh, using different approach they lobby lobbying from inside because they can and get access to the policies and information and also influence the elite within the inside to get to the point that they want. Yeah. If I can add to that, I think, you know, history tells us that like smart authoritarians do engage in negotiations and they actually plan a transition so they can still preserve a little, a, a, a lot of influence and power. So if we compare, for instance, 1989 to neighboring countries, Hungary and Romania, in Hungary, when they realize that the movement is growing and that uh, the, how should I say, it's going to be very difficult to preserve power, the Hungarian authorities entered very early in negotiations and organized a series of roundtables and, and actually had a managed transition, while in neighboring Romania, then President Ceausescu refused to do that and uh, the the result of those two transitions is very different. And I think, you know, we, we can find a lot of examples where elites who used to preside over the authoritarian countries 
actually uh, uh, traded their political uh, uh, power for economic power, and they managed to maintain their, uh, how shall I say, influence in the new democracy, just shifting away from a political monopoly towards uh, more economic uh, uh, economic power. And so, you know, there are many cases of that. Thank you. And uh, uh, Professor Jessica, did you want to highlight uh, some more examples? Yes. Um, so we have a, a lot of really great examples um, in, in the book. One of the chapters is on Turkey, and um, the author looks at women's assemblies, so groups that are trying to have uh, more protection of women's rights. And what's really interesting about that chapter um, is that you know, authoritarian regimes are not monolithic. So just because you have certain ideas in one part of the government, it doesn't mean that that's equally shared. And so what this chapter finds is that at the city level, there's actually been a lot of responsiveness for forming these local assemblies or women's councils. And so in 25 different cities in Turkey, um, they were able to form these organizations to advocate for women's rights. And so again, when we talk about these adaptive lobbyists, sometimes trying to figure out where those cracks are in the regime and where there are differences of opinion actually create openings for advocacy. Uh, thanks for that. And I think at the heart of this, of course, are the security risks and how to navigate. You know, what role do, you know, do we, is there for engaging with security mechanisms? Because, I mean, that those are the sources of the threats that we see. Uh, there's also a question, uh, and feel free to respond also. How do civil society groups avoid being influenced by their foreign donors and maintain autonomy over their agenda? Uh, there's also another question, um, which is to Professor Jessica. Have you also looked at the case of Saudi Arabia where activists have to be very careful with their advocacy in order not to steal MBS's thunder regarding social innovations and reforms? So whoever is ready can tackle those. I can answer the Saudi Arabia question very quickly because we didn't look at that case actually. So, so I can't speak directly to it, but we did look at a number of cases where there is severe repression. Um, so for example, a lot of the people that I've interviewed in my research um, studying civil society in China are, are in jail for life sentences. Um, and so in those regimes where we do see active repression, um, what has been interesting for me to study is that um, it's not that you can't, that there's any sort of foolproof way to avoid repression, but oftentimes the, the repression is the end instance, right? And so there are, there are actually a number of repertoires of repression that happen before that stage. And so no, for a lot of groups, normally what happens is there are other interventions first. And then the group is sort of making the choice whether to continue with that work in exactly the same way, or if this is one of those moments where they adapt. And so a lot of the successful cases that I study have managed to avoid repression simply by coming at the issue a different way, using a different tactic, or stopping for a period of time and then restarting again later when political conditions change. So um, we don't have a case on Saudi Arabia, but we do have several cases on um, fairly authoritarian regimes with, with a lot of repression. Uh, thank you. And Ivan or Sofia, do you want to address yes, the civil yes. society? Mm -hmm. Yes, let me, let me, how should I say, just um, uh, go back to, you know, the, the source of power of, of uh, uh, if we don't look at civil society as a collection of small NGOs that are like each of them dealing with like a particular issue and are highly professionalized, but if we look at civil society as a as a vast array of of, of informal networks and uh, and and potential for social movement, if not an existing social movement, we can see that the source of power is in people and their participation rather than financial resources, and so smart. Uh, social movements and uh, civil society organizations that that were part of them were wisely using uh, funds, both locally uh, uh, resourced, locally sourced, or those who that, that were acquired from international donors. But they were using them wisely, but they were not relying on them. They were relying on building that participation of citizens and this is actually what kept them uh, independent 
and at the same time accountable to the communities that they were representing. And that's why it's called people power, because the source of that power is people. Thank you. Please, Sophia, take the floor. Uh, uh, yeah, I just want to add on Iran and that process. I mean, when it comes to social movement, it yeah, of course, we can claim as independent because social movement can be mass, can be a variety of things that come up. Uh, people can come to the street without uh, identifying themselves as part of any organization. But when it comes to the advocacy group, it is a specific civil society that tend to be fed in by different resources, something like that, uh, in that context. So. I think to to avoid to being labeled as a foreign uh, agent or foreign intervention in developing country, I mean, one of the key things that you would say is about identifying yourself, uh, identity. So identity will play a very important role in this context uh, to to label yourself as an independent person or something like that, that, that link to the context like that. And majority of the country that work, that are civil society that work in the country with authoritarianism are playing role, for example, in the context of China, something like that, and also in other South with Asia as well. So working together uh, to lobby the policy because the agenda setting is not always a very independent and very critical of the policy, but also working along, uh, along with the policy that has been built or endorsed by the government. And then the civil society using that rhetoric in order to lobbying from inside is also the key thing that to make sure that there is no challenging issue when it comes to uh, foreign intervention and also as uh, uh, is like the one who actually looking for change of the regime within the country by the foreign donors in that context, yeah. Thank you, and I'll take it back to Professor Jessica. I just wanted to pick up on what Sophia was saying about, um, so a lot of these organizations, they need to make sure that they're understood as a domestic group, right? And that they don't have any international ties. But I also want to say that, you know, the work that ICNC does, ICNL and um, USI. At Ford Foundation, a number of other international organizations, the work that that you all do for conflict transformation and talking about the power of civic participation, that work is still really important. So a lot of those um, leaders, they have been trained or had capacity development exercises through one of these organizations. And even if they haven't had direct training, oftentimes they're using models that they've learned about in your research for their work. So they oftentimes do have to maintain sort of a division between I'm a domestic group and I don't have international resources. But even if they don't have direct funding, they're learning from the international and transnational community. And it's such an important resource. So thank you for all of your work. Uh, thank you all. Uh, really just to help us appreciate the prevailing threats um, that authoritarian regimes are posing to civil society and other stakeholders and echoing the need for collective nonviolent actions and solidarity, which is not just local, but also international, um, looking at the diverse roles that different stakeholders play, including grassroots um, and the people power uh, movements that we are seeing across the world. I also want to highlight that legal uh, restrictions are a significant tool that is really, really emboldening, emboldening um, autocratic states. So efforts for influencing norms and legislations that are protective of human rights and civic space is definitely very critical. Um, and of course, highlighting the important role that ICT and uh, uh, digital tools and platforms are playing in sort of equipping civil society in responding and pushing back against these these regimes. Um, and so as we sort of come to a close, I want to invite each of you to share your wrap up uh, points. Um, I will start off with um, Ivan and then Sophia, then we'll end it with Professor Jessica. Thank you very much. I just want to kind of, uh, 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 how should I say, uh, build on what Jessica said earlier that like this uh, education and, and models and, and more general like skills are something that is really important and that, you know, even with or without resources, even in adverse conditions where, you know, not much can be done, a closed space, you know, the appropriate skills can actually get uh, people uh, a long way. And I think this book also shows that, like, you know, uh, through lobbying uh, autocrats, which is kind of also one skill, we can achieve a lot, even if, if it doesn't look like that, uh, judging from the kind of how autocracy looks. Thank you, Sophia. 
Yeah, I think in in context of lobbying autocracy in that context, there is no one side that fit uh, one project that fit all all the objective in that context. So, uh, the cycle that Jessica mentioned uh, doing the presentation. So there's a movement around from one cycle to another cycle. If one approach doesn't work, then we we'll go to the cycle of the approach that they are exploring in that context. So working together with the not only with the with the context of like networking internationally, but also locally is also play an important role as well to understand how advocacy and as well lobbying approach can be working in a more effective ways in that context. Thank you. Thank you. And Jessica, in a few seconds. Um, I just want to say that doing this research has shown me, um, I guess, a ray of hope in that even though we're in this age of authoritarianism, there's this powerful promise of civic participation where people are changing policies and advocating for what their community needs and sometimes even pushing back against authoritarian role. And so I think we should all study and focus on this um, particular thing. Thank you very much. Thank you all. And just to say there is a light at the end of the tunnel. So thank you all for sharing your thoughts. And to the participants, we hope these reflections have been engaging. The discussion should continue uh, for sure. And uh, we thank you all for taking the time. We thank um, USIP for uh, hosting us today. Um, it's been a wonderful opportunity to, to really just hear and uh, participate. Thank you all and wish you all a good day. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.